Hello, and welcome to the Race and Rights Podcast. This is Sahar Aziz, distinguished law professor and author of the book, The Racial Muslim, When Racism Quashes Religious Freedom. I also serve as the director of the Rutgers Center for Security, Race, and Rights, also known as CSRR. You can learn more about the center by visiting our website at csrr.rutgers.edu or following us on Instagram at RutgersCSRR and on Twitter at RUCSRR. The Race and Rights podcast explores the myriad issues that adversely impact the civil and human rights of America's diverse Muslim, Arab, and South Asian communities, here as well as abroad. Today's podcast is entitled, Except for Palestine, the Limits of Progressive Politics, featuring Professor Mark Lamont Hill and Israel-Palestine expert Mitchell Plitnik, who co-authored a book by the same name. Professor Hill and Mr. Plitnik discussed the double standards of American liberals and progressives who oppose regressive policies on immigration, racial justice, gender equality, LGBTQ rights, and other civil rights issues. But at the same time, these same liberals and progressives support one-sided pro-Israel policies that dehumanize Palestinians and legitimize Israel's decades-long brutal occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. Let's hear what our guests have to say about this troubling trend in American society. So first I will introduce our moderator, then I will introduce the two speakers. So Neil Mullen has been a plaintiff's employment lawyer for 30 years. He is one of our most accomplished, illustrious alumni at the Rutgers Law School, People's Electric Law School, someone that I am very fortunate to have met, and I think that this law school is very fortunate to have him as an alumnus. He's a fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers and a fellow of the American College of Labor and Employment Lawyers. He graduated from Columbia University, magna cum laude, and Phi Beta Kappa, and he graduated from Rutgers Law School in Newark. He has been honored as a distinguished graduate of Rutgers, and he has argued successfully in the Supreme Court of the United States and the Supreme Court of New Jersey. Mr. Mullen has achieved numerous substantial employment law and civil rights jury verdicts in New Jersey and has achieved substantial settlements. Mr. Mullen has advised high-level executives with regard to personal employment law issues. He has appeared on Court TV and has been published in the New York Times and the Seton Hall Law Review and other publications. He has lectured throughout the state of New Jersey and the country and has recently lectured on employment law at Oxford University, England for the Industrial Law Society. Mr. Mullen has been named Lawyer of the Year by Best Lawyers for Employment Law in 2014 and Labor and Employment Law in 2000. 10. And I could go on and on. Neil is a good friend, uh, a brilliant lawyer, and someone that I and any other lawyer would love to work with and and, and be trained by uh, based on his remarkable expertise. And I would be remiss if I didn't also acknowledge his courageous politics. He was a, a big advocate and participant in sit-ins at Columbia Law School. I let him talk about that if he chooses. And he was also a big defender of the minority student program at Rutgers when it was being subjected to litigation by those who did not want to see more black and brown lawyers. So uh, we're very thankful to Neil for his commitment to social justice. Next, I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Mark Lamont Hill. He is currently the host of BET News and the Coffee and Books podcast. He is an award-winning journalist. Dr. Hill has received awards from the National Association of Black Journalists, GLAAD, and the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences. Dr. Hill is the Steve Charles Professor of Media, Cities, and Solutions at Temple University. Prior to that, he held positions at Columbia University and Morehouse College. 
Dr. Hill has been a social justice activist and organizer in Philadelphia from a young age. He has worked on campaigns to end the death penalty, abolish prisons, and release political prisoners. He is the founder and director of the People's Education Center in Philadelphia, as well as the owner of Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books. Ebony Magazine has named him one of America's 100 most influential Black leaders. Dr. Hill is the author or co-author of six books, including the one we're discussing today with Mitchell Plitnick, Except for Palestine, the Limits of Progressive Politics. He holds a PhD with distinction from the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Hill's research agenda focuses on the intersections between culture, politics, and education in the United States and the Middle East. Next, I have the pleasure of introducing our second speaker and the co-author of the book, Mitchell Plitnick. He is a political analyst, writer, and president of Rethinking Foreign Policy. He is the co-author of Except for Palestine, and Mitchell's previous positions include vice president at the Foundation for Middle East Peace, director of the U.S. office of B'Tselem, the Israeli Information Center for Human Rights in the Occupied Territories, and co-director of Jewish Voice for Peace. His writing has appeared in Haaretz, The New Republic, The Jordan Times, Middle East Report, Tikkun Magazine, The San Francisco Chronicle, Plus 972 Magazine, Outlook, and other outlets. He has spoken all over the country on Middle East politics and has regularly offered commentary in a wide range of radio and television outlets, including PBS NewsHour, The O'Reilly Factor, I-24 in Israel, Pacifica Radio, CNBC Asia, and others. Plitnick graduated with honors from UC Berkeley in Middle Eastern Studies and wrote his thesis on Israeli and Jewish historiography. He earned his master's degree from the University of Maryland College Park School of Public Policy. As you can see from these abbreviated bios, we are so fortunate to have three brilliant minds today to moderate and discuss and examine, again, a topic that is highly complicated, but never more important than today. And that is the issue of Palestine and more specifically Palestinian human rights, and even more specifically, why progressives in the United States seem to stop at the border of Palestine and their politics, what we call PEP, right? Without further ado, I will now hand over the virtual floor and virtual mic to Mr. Neil Mullen. Thank you, Professor. It's always been a pleasure to be at your classes, to see them. I think you are a brilliant teacher. You are a tremendous contribution to Rutgers. Uh, your center is doing mar marvelous work in the area of racism and Islamophobia and the security setting. I hope the university understands how valuable you are to alumni like me. I hope they remember that. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to meet you. I want to commend you, first of all, on your courage in writing this book. I know in the academic setting, people who raise these issues come under vicious attack. I think you're brave. I like what you wrote. I don't agree with everything in it, but it got me thinking, and I agree with a lot in it. At this moment, the Palestinian struggle in both the occupied territory and inside Israel, seems to me very much a movement in retreat, if not defeat. And not permanent defeat, don't get me wrong, but a moment of defeat. Gaza is an open-air prison with two million inmates, without potable water, and with a 50% unemployment rate. Israeli soldiers shoot and kill or cripple Palestinian protesters, including children, who demonstrate near the border fence, demonstrate for freedom. Israeli gunboats patrol the Gazan waters, hunting down fishermen who go beyond Israel's imaginary line in the sea. The Palestinians in the West Bank fare a little better. When they travel to work or homes, they spend hours at heavily armed checkpoints, often the site of violence against Palestinians. They have to travel on third-class roads they're forced to use, while settlers travel on fine roads, highways. 
Hundreds of thousands of Israeli settlers occupy their lands. A wall condemned by international courts cuts off their border, and soldiers bulldoze the homes of Palestinian families whose members have, are deemed to have violated the rules of occupation. The conditions for nearly two million Palestinian Arabs inside the borders of Israel proper are terrible, often involving more punitive home demolitions, unjust arrest and confinement, and discrimination against towns on a fiscal basis. Arab towns are, get much, much less than they deserve from the national budget. Against this dark backdrop in your book, you ask the question, where are the voices of U.S. progressives on Palestine about these conditions, about this struggle? U.S. progressives have shouted about the invasion of Iraq. In an earlier period, when I was a young man, we shouted very loudly about the slaughter in Vietnam and Cambodia. We were on the streets. We shut down universities. And all across the country, we made our voices heard. So why, why U.S.? Do progressives now make an exception for Palestinians? and for the issue of Palestine. Where are their voices? I don't want to diminish some groups that are out there that you know of, like Black for Palestine, Jewish Voices for Peace, Students for Justice in Palestine, and so on. But generally speaking, I'm asking your question. I want you to take it and run with it. Why are they quiet, the progressives? You give only a couple examples of progressives in your book. You mentioned Cory Booker, who I don't think is a progressive. And you mentioned Bernie Sanders, who is a progressive. But you didn't go much into who you mean by the silent progressive. So tell me, what internal subjective factors make them silent or muted, and what external factors silence or mute them? Well, why don't we start with that? Yeah, thank you. First of all, thank you to everyone from the center to Sahar to you, Neil, for inviting us. We're very honored and excited to be here. And thank you for that very uh, rich and layered and textured question. I think you're right that with the implicit point you make, right, attached to your explicit critique of Cory Booker, which is that the label progressive itself is in some ways uh, what could be called a floating signifier. And we often project political green screens on people and we make them who we want them to be. We saw that in the Obama administration. We've seen it with other uh, politicians. Our claim in the book is not so much that someone like a Cory Booker is progressive, but these are people who identify with progressive values, whether you call them liberals, whether you call them progressives, whether you call, you know, some are, some aren't. To some extent, it's, it's in the eye of the beholder. I would argue that there are some very particular political positions one must take to be in this space. But nonetheless, Cory Booker would say, I'm a progressive. And if you were to press Cory Booker on the right of citizens to sue Hobby Lobby or to challenge Walmart for labor practices, he would say, oh, the people have a right. It's only when this Palestine question comes up that you begin to see him saying, well, we need to protect corporations and well, we need to. And it becomes a much more interesting conversation and a problematic one, to be sure. And so your question is, well, why? Why this issue? What are the factors that make this this way? I think there are a few. One, I think, is that politicians don't have feelings. They have interests. Politicians get elected to get reelected. Politicians do what they must in order to be successful. And there are political positions that are relatively safe in mainstream politics. And saying that I stand with Israel, that Israel is our unwavering ally, and keep saying two-state solution, like, a, like almost like a tick, these are ways that you can very easily stay on the mainstream and really not have to delve into the issue very much at all, which is what most politicians want to do. So some of it is just that it's, it's become an almost shibboleth of the mainstream democratic circle that you, that you make those claims and you keep moving. I'm going to use the Cory Booker example, and I'm going to, I'm going to be brief because I, I know Mitchell has a bunch to say about this as well. With the, Cory Booker also comes out of a tradition of, of Black politicians and, and Black, particularly CBC members, who have often sided with Israel 
And part of it is because there's been a long history of allyship between the civil rights movement and black Jewish activists, and Jewish activists. And Jewish Americans have been very, very powerful, strong, and in many ways, unwavering allies to black people in the United States. And as a result, we've seen the conversation move in a different way than perhaps it otherwise would have. Uh, there's also a long and deep history of black freedom fighters who have seen the formation of the state of Israel as a site of possibility. I mean, if you look back in the early 20th century, folk like W.E.B. Du Bois, folk like Mark Garvey, you know, the initial idea here, even Martin Luther King to a large extent, until you get to about 46, 47, were making the claim that, look, Israel, black people are oppressed, we're unsafe, we're unprotected, we're hated, we're subject to random violence, and we need a, a space of safety and protection. And we could look to Jews who were catching hell in, throughout the diaspora and say, look what they did. But of course, as we move through the 40s and 50s, by the time we get to the next, by the time we get to the 67 war, you began to see a shift in Black thought because we began to understand what was at stake with the creation of the formation of the state of Israel. We began to see what was at stake in the 1967 war. We began to, we began to pay more attention to it. And there was a growing internationalism that shifted the stakes of the debate from the Bandung conference of the 50s up until now. So there's this really interesting moment where the Black left went this way and Black mainstreamers went the other way. And those Black mainstreamers now are identifying as leftists, which is your point about Corey and others. And so I think that's also part of the, part of the tension. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is there's effective lobbying. You know, Israel has had effective lobbying. The NRA has had effective lobbying. Lots of groups have effective lobbying. But the Israeli lobby has been incredibly effective and consistent and well-funded. And they've done a good job of advocating for their own interests. And advocating for those interests has meant that it is politically advantageous to take a pro-Israel position. And because there's so much Islamophobia, because there's so much anti-Arab hatred, because there's so much racism, that the disposability of Arabs, the disposability of Palestinians, the disposability of Muslims has become, again, another normalized practice in the West or idea in the West. And so the fact that all the conditions of Gaza that you just described, all the conditions in the West Bank that we could speak to, it just becomes ordinary. That's just what they do. And so that becomes a reality. Anyway, I'll stop there. I'll just pick up on, and also let me thank everyone for the wonderful introductions and, and everyone for being here. First of all, the term progressive, as Mark pointed out, you know, is sort of fungible. Different people. I mean, I, re I recall not long ago, Nancy Pelosi insisting she was progressive. She's not someone I would consider progressive. It means different things to different people. At times, it has been applied to people who were quite elitist. If you go back to the early 20th century and the meaning of the word progressive back then and applying it to people like Woodrow Wilson and Teddy Roosevelt, it's a uh, very different. So it has a, a lot of different meanings. And I think the reason that we chose a fungible term like that is precisely because people make this claim. And when Nancy Pelosi stands up and says, I'm progressive, well, she's trying to point out that she's standing for certain values. She's trying to convince people that she stands for certain values, which we can debate whether or not she really does. But I think what we're using it for is to say, okay, we're going to, whether we think you stand for those values or not, we're going to take those values and we're going to hold them up in front of you like a mirror and, and say, are you really living up to them when it comes to Palestine? Is it different? And I think it is different. I think for a lot of people who stand up, you know, I, I look at people who are absolutely, you know, and, and granted social media is kind of a, a horrible place for things like this, but I look at people who say just the most horrifyingly racist things about Palestinians. And then I look at their profile and they have a big hashtag Black Lives Matter on it. And this is really the point of what we're trying to do. We're trying to say, how can you possibly reconcile these two attitudes? I don't believe people can. Then we come to the question of why does it happen? Why do we get there? 
And we can talk about nationalism, and that, that's an important, I think, a very important conversation about nationalism and how it plays out in this conflict. But I think right now, more immediately, when we are looking at why people can have these sort of dual values and not recognize the clash between them, a lot of it has to do with, of course, Jewish history and how people feel that if they criticize Israel, if they say Israel should not be doing to the Palestinians what they are doing, they're implying that Israel should not exist. And if they feel that if they imply that Israel should not exist, they're being anti-Semitic. That is a very heavy weapon. Anti-Semitism is a hell of an accusation, even though at the same time, for many, you know, part of the way that plays out is that for many people, they sort of wall themselves off from uh, accusations of anti-Semitism and say uh, anti-Semitism doesn't exist anymore, we, we've transcended it, etc., which is absolutely not true, I can tell you from personal experience. But that accusation has been hurled so many times that this has been the response, and that is problematic. At the same time, it's also used in very cynical fashion to protect Israel from any criticism. And I think people feel that very, very strongly. I think on the political level, people also, and I think maybe the biggest factor is simply that for the left and for progressives, this is a foreign policy issue. This is an issue that happens over there. For the pro-Israel forces and for members of Congress and people running for office, it is not a foreign policy issue. It is a domestic issue. And so it is very, very important for them to say the right things to get their votes. Whereas on the left, I think there are many people who see this as a problematic issue. But when it comes down to it, are they going to not vote for a member, for a person for Congress? Are they going to not vote for a certain candidate for president because of their stance on Palestine when they like their stances on things like taxes, on things like education, on things, you know, on various domestic social issues? I think that's where the exception comes in. The pro-Israel side, and and when I say pro-Israel, that is also in its own way a misnomer, as I believe, uh, in fact, I'm convinced that many people who call themselves pro-Israel are not only anti-Semitic, but also are not actually acting in the best interests of Israelis. But that's the label that we have, so I'll use it. Those folks have successfully turned this into a domestic issue. And on the left, we just don't prioritize it that much. Progressives don't prioritize any foreign policy issue, especially one that the United States isn't boots on the ground directly involved in. Yes, everyone knows that our diplomatic and financial assistance plays a big role, but that's not quite the same thing as having American troops there, which we do not have. And that tends to be where American progressives get involved. So between all of these factors, I think there are a lot of people who say, yeah, that sort of bothers me, but it's not my highest priority. And that is something that, you know, defenders of Israeli policies take very, very great advantage of. Thank you. I want to swing back to something, uh, well, both of you have mentioned it, Dr. Hill mentioned it first, the, the, the significance of the enormous Jewish presence in the American progressive movement. People like me, you know, my, my, both of my grandparents, uh, grandfathers escaped Russia during pogroms. I have a great aunt who was murdered by a Cossack over there. So people like me who have been out on the streets for all these movements, right, my friends, and our children and our grandchildren who are out there demonstrating in the Black Lives Matter movement are raised with a history, a narrative, right, that before the Holocaust, there were the pogroms and the mass slaughter. Jabotinsky, who you quote from, organized a defense movement, an armed defense movement in Odessa, Russia, to try to kill the people who were killing my people. And the pogroms were enormous before the Holocaust. 
And a lot of our grandfathers and grandmothers came over because of the pogroms. And so this is a narrative we grow up with, you know. And so then when we have the Seder, you know, and we talk about the oppression of the Jews by, by Egypt, you know, the Pharaoh and so on and so forth. No offense to say it. There's this narrative. You guys and folks that want to try to penetrate the American progressive movement have to engage on a historical level, on a factual level. You have to dig in and do that to move large numbers of American progressives on this issue. It's all the other stuff you mentioned. But if you're talking about the progressive movement, it's an enormous presence and with this narrative. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, since we're talking, frankly, why not talk about it? Just what are your thoughts on that? You know, for example, I've been showing my some of my family some of the historic documents, like the uh, Covenant 22 of the League of Nations, which is a racist statement that England now has a right to take Palestine and do with it what it will, because the people there are incapable of ruling themselves and, quote unquote, civilization should be placed over them to guide them. That's how England got it, right? And that's how Israel got formed ultimately. But where is that battle being fought? Where is that narrative being uh, challenged and, and, ex- and exposed and dealt with? Yeah. So, is so, that not possible? You know, I, I think it's possible. And I think there's a lot of, I mean, again, very layered question. <laughs> the first thing I'd say is one one place where that's being, actually, let me, let me start from the front and then back it up. The first thing I'd say is, you know, in an increasingly secular world, and this isn't just for my Jewish uh, brothers and sisters, for Muslims, it's for Christians, for everyone, we're increasingly secularized. And for many of us, there's a, a, a more narrow slice of things upon which we hold, hang our religious identities, our ethnic identities, et cetera. And for many people, when I talk to many Jewish American progressives, and this is, I'll actually defer to Mitchell on this more, but Peter Biden has talked about this, others have talked about this as well. There's a way that the question of Israel seems to, that there's a way that it's not just a political issue, it's not just a domestic issue, it's not just a foreign policy issue, it's also an issue of identity. And so many people hang their very sense of Jewish identity on the, on the question of Israel, particularly in an increasingly secularized world for everybody. So I think that's one issue here. The other issue is the one you said, right, is that there is a narrative. And, and, and again, Mitchell will talk more about this. I mean, even watching, hearing Mitchell's conversion story, I mean, it's, it's not quite Paul on the way to Damascus. But hearing him talk about sort of how he was raised to understand this issue to how he came to understand it once he did a different type of investigation is absolutely fascinating. It speaks to the way that a very legitimate and real issue still remains, right? There's a way that absolutely, I mean, you're you're talking about, we're not 10 generations away from the Holocaust. We're not 10 generations away from the pogroms in Russia or Poland. We're not, or or, or seeing what happened in the Middle East to, to Jewish folk, to see what happened. I mean, we could look around the globe. So you're absolutely right. I mean, there's very real pain, very real horror, very real human atrocity, some of the worst of which we've ever experienced or seen that people are still wrestling with and that people are talking about, not just in deep history books, but at the family reunion, when they look through archives, et cetera. And so that pain is very real and that and the desire to protect themselves from future pain, future crises, et cetera, helps to stabilize a certain kind of politics that might otherwise be un, unstable, untenable for people who identify as progressives. The other piece of this because you asked the question about where is this battle being fought? I think it's being fought in the media. It's being fought on the political front. It's being fought in the academy. If you look, for example, at the at the uh, the new historians, right? If you look at the kind of the body of a revisionist historiography that emerges in Middle East studies, particularly whether it's the Avi Schlames, whether it's the I mean, we could look on down down the list, right? Of even Israeli and sometimes even Zionist, right? Ilan Pape, right? Of folk who are helping to challenge those narratives, because some of those narratives are among the most stable. They're the talking points we hear on cable news, they're the arguments made by policymakers. 
even if they're not true. And that's part of what we're trying to unpack in the book, right? Oh, if only they would acknowledge Palestine's right to, I mean, Israel's right to exist. Oh, what about UN Resolution 242? Oh, what about 330? Oh, what about, you know, Arafat's statement in 88? What about the Palestinian Declaration of Independence? Oh, what about the letters of mutual recognition in 1993? Like, this is all like recognition, right? But the, so unpacking that history, even if it's recent history, is important. Oh, Palestinians left. They left their villages expecting a quick victory and they were going to come back, ignoring places like Deir Yassin, right? Ignoring what actually happened, right? Going back and reading things like the Hope Simpson Report, going back and reading the Peel Commission Report, reading the British White Papers, reading all the kind of evidence that unpacks what really happened on the ground, which stands in sharp contrast to how history is narrated. The most dominant American narrative is, is that Israel was formed in uh, aftermath of the Holocaust or in response to the Holocaust. But if we understand that the World Zionist Organization, or back then the Zionist Organization, the ZO, emerges, right? And if you look at what Herschel's doing in 1897, if you, if you look at even sort of when the first Aliyah begins in 1882, it's long before Hitler ever rose to power, right? So there's a Zionist movement that still isn't, and let me be very clear for those who are looking to clip this um, and, and misrepresent what I'm saying. I'm saying that there was a very real threat to Jewish people around the world, even prior to the Holocaust. I'm not suggesting that there was no other reason to be concerned. What I'm saying, though, is that the Israeli project emerges and, and the issue of develops long before the question of the Holocaust, which is its own crisis. But the pogroms were also problems, right? They were also huge crises. And so all of this stuff is emerging. So the academy is attempting to rewrite that. That's why you need the Avi Shlames and the Ilan Pepe's just as much as you need the Rashid Khalidis, right? Because you need all of this, right? What else? There, then there was one more slice to your question. That I don't remember. I'm sure Mitchell will. But to me, those are the tensions that we have to think through, right? The intellectual battles. We have to rewrite the history. We also have to rearticulate them in our media narratives of how we talk about this. I don't even personally, although sometimes there's just not a better word, I don't even like to use the word conflict because of all the political weight that it conveys, even though I, I haven't come up with a better word to properly sort of assess what it means for two people to, or for groups of people to be fighting, but still accounting for this, this gross power differential. Yeah, let me just jump in very quickly, uh, yeah. Dr. Hill. On the... Uh... The issue of uh, the pre-Holocaust reason for Zionism, you often refer to the Zionist project, and others do too, as though it was uh, Herzl sitting in a, in a chair, you know, with a pipe, thinking, of, I, think I, I think I'll take Palestine. Something in the Bible makes me own it. It wasn't a project. It was an escape plan in the face of horrible anti-Semitism. Herzl's in you know, France and Dreyfus, and the death toll of the pogroms was enormous and especially in Ukraine, Poland, and Russia, thousands and thousands. So I would, I would I just, make it less of a project, though. It's a project. When you, when you call it a project, it sounds like it's an intellectual project made by a bunch of racist colonialists who decided to seize a land. I don't forgive what happened. Don't get me wrong. What I'm saying is the Jewish house was on fire in Europe long before the Holocaust. The slaughter was great. You know, I know it from firsthand sources, but I also know it from studying history. Zionism was created as an escape plan, especially when the United States raised barriers to Jewish immigration in 1924, because they thought Jews were all Bolsheviks at that point, and England did the same. And two anti-Semites, right, Lord Balfour and Churchill, decided, well, send them to Palestine. You know, so I, I don't say that. Well, let me push back just a little bit. Just as, again, one, one not, to, not to get too pedantic with it. Go ahead. One, that, that wouldn't negate the idea. Of, I, I wouldn't concede that a project means that it's not born out of some sense of necessity. The idea here, though, that I'm not doubting the kind of existential urgency that emerges when you're catching hell throughout Europe. Um, but that wouldn't negate the fact that there is a very clear plan that included organizing, 
deciding where to go. The, the idea to go to Ottoman Palestine was one of several projects. Africa was also looked to, Latin America was also considered. So to that extent, this is a, a level of planning and consideration. I don't think it's Herzl sitting around with a pipe, but I do think that it was a very clear, and I think all historians on all sides of this issue, some people don't like the term project because of what it may connote. It may connote something more sinister. I would push back against that too and say, I'm not suggesting anything sinister as much as I'm saying it was a settler colonial project. And you're right. I mean, the refusal to admit Jewish people into the United States and Britain absolutely expedited the need for the mandate to happen. But but let's be clear. The, first of all, the mandatory system isn't exclusive to Palestine, right? That Europe was carving up Africa and the Middle East long before then under the premise that these people can't govern themselves. And long before 1924, we could go back 40 years. Remember, the first Aliyah is 1882 until we get to, to about 1903. And so long before this denial is happening, there's a decision to go here. And again, going here makes sense. There's a longstanding, never-ending, never-interrupted Jewish presence in mandatory Palestine or in Ottoman Palestine. So I'm not nullifying that. I'm not saying that they did this and, and you know, pin the tail on the donkey and chose Palestine, historic Palestine, but it absolutely is a project and it absolutely is one that was born out of both political calculation. I mean, that's part of what we get into with, with, with Jabotinsky's whole point about, about the Iron Wall and what it means. You know, let me let me pause because I feel like I'm I'm boxing Mitchell. Mitchell, Mitchell, Mitchell I want Mitchell to jump on in, please. Yeah, really quickly. I mean, there, there's a couple of things that I would want to point out here. First of all, to try and bring this outside of you know a sort of academic debate about history, which is important. Don't get me wrong. The history here is important. As somebody whose own background, all of my grandparents came to the United States fleeing pogroms. I'm actually a, a fairly rare American of my generation where all four of my grandparents who all came here at the beginning of the 20th century were all Americans. Their parents came here fleeing pogroms. Nobody was in Europe, at least among my grandparents. They had relatives who were in Europe at the time of the Holocaust. So I have some personal history and, and it is certainly true that that flight informs a lot of what is happening today. And it's also the case that Nowadays, with a much more secular Jewish population, not just in America, but all over the world, the majority of Jews are secular, many completely irreligious. And for them, Israel is very much their Jewish identity. And this complicates matters a great deal, because this is one of the reasons that when people, you know, it isn't only cynicism that gets defenders of Israel to say that attacks on Israel or criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. It's because they feel it. Israel is their Jewish identity. And so for many people, if that is your identity as a Jew, when Israel is criticized, you feel that personally, even if you agree with the criticism, it's still hurt. It's still unpleasant. And it can sometimes feel like, well, yeah, okay, Israel did this thing, but why don't you talk about these other guys that, that do this? Thing? So, you know, all of those things can come from a real and non-cynical place. Doesn't actually make them, you know, it should not mean that that should win the day. But it, it should mean that when we engage with that, we can do it with the understanding that it may not be completely born out of cynicism. It is also important, I think, to remember, Neil, as you point out, not only in the mandatory pre-war era, but I think especially during the Holocaust, the fact that the world closed its doors, this was a unique experience for the Jewish people. It is certainly true that the U.S. closed its doors to Jews earlier before the Holocaust as the waves of immigrants came from Eastern Europe, but they also, people were able to get in and doors reopened. And in World War II especially, when so many skilled younger men were off fighting war, it seemed like a logical thing to let skilled workers in. And yet the United States among and most of Europe did not do so. It was a very strange decision that can only be explained by anti-Semitism. 
And I think that is something that resonates very strongly, even if people aren't entirely conscious of it today. If Jews are not entirely conscious of it today, I think it's something that collectively resonates very strongly. So these are all real issues. And I discuss in a recent edition of my newsletter why that is an important thing for people to understand in terms of resolving the issues that we face today. And I think when we are talking about those issues that we face today, and we are talking about why Palestine is an exception and is a morally separate sort of issue for people, it's important to understand that the issue here is that however justified you may think the Zionist movement was, there has been you know, over three quarters of a century now of dispossession of Palestinian people on one level or another. And none of this justifies that. That's right. No, that's right. I wanted to say that. Yeah, it hasn't been justified from the beginning. A a terrible wrong was done to the Jewish people. That never justifies the dispossession of the Palestinian people. And I just want to really quickly say, you know, that one of the reasons that I feel like this needs to be addressed in a very direct manner is because you know, the, the Zionist movement itself was a secular movement and, you know, sort of made a very uneasy peace with Orthodox Judaism. And it did that based on the idea that there was a national collective identity of Jews that was rooted in Palestine. That is a very modern European definition of nationalism that was imposed, uh, essentially, on the Palestinian people to dispossess them. So that is something, you know, the idea that that Jews are a nation and are they're entitled to constitute themselves as such is fine and, and acceptable and is a Jewish decision. And it's really no one else's business to decide whether or not we can constitute ourselves as a nation. But the decision to then say, well, and that nation's home is over there in Palestine, where almost none of us are, a very tiny percentage of world Jewry was at the end of the 19th century and even into the 20th century, after several Aliyah, there still was only a small percentage of Jews that were there. That decision impacted another people. And that's what we're dealing with to this day. So that liberal exception for Palestine has actually been used to justify the dispossession. And that's why to this day and why what we're arguing in the book is so important. That cannot, we, if we want to resolve this question, that's the thing we can't tolerate anymore. We cannot allow the idea that our people, Jews, have suffered enormously and the world turned its back on us, and that is all really horrible. But the Palestinians actually, among all people, really didn't do that. There were a lot of other people who did, and the Palestinians are the ones paying the price for that, and that is unjust, unrealistic, and it has caused a century of conflict that until we stop looking at it through that lens is not going to change. Let's do five more minutes, and let, I would just want to let Mark and Mitchell focus a, a little bit on the domestic politics, just a little bit more, and then we'll start taking questions. Mark, you want to interject? Uh, yeah, if, if I mean, I'm happy to answer a question about the book, too. Yeah, we can go any, any way you want. Anything in particular you're thinking about? Well, I think let's answer the ultimate question, which is why are progressives silent on Palestine? And I realize progressives is homogenizing monolithic, but even if you can break that down, but because ultimately that's the question that your book poses and whether it's the African-American progressive communities, plural, Latinx American communities, plural, Jewish American communities, plural. I think we've talked a lot. Neil brought in some interesting insights, important insights about the Jewish American progressive communities. What about African-American communities? What about Latinx communities, what, you know, all these other yeah. white WASP liberal communities. 
It's an interesting question. One thing I want to say is that I think the tide is turning and I think things are changing. I think that obviously not as quickly as we'd like to see, but things are moving. And I think a few things have made that happen. One, of course, is Operation Protective Edge. When you look at the, and to be, I know this may seem like a bizarre way to imagine a progressive shift, but essentially when you look at in 2014, when we see uh, that 51-day war in Gaza, a very interesting thing happens, right? And I remember I was working at CNN at the time. You may have heard I don't work there anymore. They're projecting images, and we're seeing a different... It's not just the, the narrative of what's happening, right, in Gaza. We're also watching bombings. We're hearing conversations about disproportionate force. We're seeing the consequences of imperialism. Amer- I'm talking, and, and right now I'm speaking about America. And in the various ways that we've also funded so much of the military work of what's happening in the Middle East, writ large. And so I think you, you, you began to see the tide turn there. Another thing that caused the tide to turn, which I found incredibly interesting, was remember the war in Gaza begins in, in July of 2014. Mike Brown is killed August of 2014. And while we were marching in the streets of Ferguson, we're getting tear gassed. We're resisting state violence. There was a great amount of Palestinian solidarity there. But also, I remember there was one night in particular uh, when Mariam Barghouti comes and she's tweeting from Ramallah, right? Because they're, they're protesting in the West Bank what's happening in Gaza. And they say, well, when you get tear gas, here's how you clean your eyes out. Here's how you protect your face. Stand closer to the soldiers because they're less likely to tear gas you if, if they're close, right? Get near the wind. I mean, these very concrete kind of tactical responses, which prompted a kind of renewal of really decades-long solidarities between Palestinians and Black Americans that really begins after, uh, or really, again, begins sort of around Bandung, gets expanded by the time Malcolm X is traveling and writes the the Zionist Logic essay in the Egyptian Gazette in September of of, uh, 64, but really crystallizes when SNCC writes a newsletter in July and August of 67 after the Six-Day War, and the conversation around neocolonialism emerges. And we begin to see these kinds of things. Martin Luther King doesn't want to go back to, to what he called the Holy Land because he was concerned about what had happened to East Jerusalem and because he was concerned about uh, being associated with what he was increasingly beginning to see as a colonial struggle. And so there's decades of that and Angela Davis. And we could go on down the list of people who have stood in strong solidarity with Palestinians to great personal and professional detriment. So what happened in Ferguson wasn't a new development, but it was a re- what Nora Arakat and I could talk about as a kind of renewal of those kinds of energies. You also begin to see politicians winning while having a stance on Palestine that was not nearly as awful. I, I can't say it was good, but not nearly as awful. You know, Bernie's first run, it wasn't a great, you know, it, to me, it's fundamentally Zionist position that he's taking. But by the time you get to Bernie the second time around, he's far more progressive on this issue. And he, he had he has the right people around him. Elizabeth Warren had a far better position, still not a good one, but a far better position around this question. They didn't win, surprise, but they didn't lose because of that issue. Right. It wasn't like Andy Young in the 70s getting hammered or Jesse Jackson in 84 getting hammered for the, how they talk about the PLO. This was something very different. This was an acceptable position to take. And so the tide is turning. One of the things that we talk about in the book, again, around this BDS question. Oh, I'm sorry. One more thing. Rashida Tlaib, it, it, it wins. Not, um, I was supposed to say not Ilhan Omar. <laughs> not Erica did not win. <laughs> but one day she will. Ilhan Omar wins, right? People winning on, on progressive positions in Palestine against considerable opposition and people who wanted to, to, to push them out of office. 
and primaried them this time around. They didn't do it. They were wildly unsuccessful. So this this stuff matters. This stuff all matters. And then we're beginning to see SJPs pop up around the country. The tide is turning in that way. Because media is being somewhat more democratized, we're not just getting corporate media narratives of what's happening in Palestine. We're also getting on the ground different types of takes. All this stuff is mattering. But Mitchell, what do you what do you think? Well, just really quickly, I just want to add, you know, the, the and go back to something, Mark, that you talked about earlier, which is internationalism. And you talked about it in the context of black internationalism, which I think is important. But but one of the big things that, that I think anybody who's active on, on Palestine gets when we do public talks, we talk to groups of people. One of the first questions I think we all get is, why should I care about this when I have so many problems in my own neighborhood, in my own state, in my own city? You know, and my people are here and they're suffering and we have this enormous wealth gap and we have capitalism out of control and we have all of these horrible things going on in the United States. And that's that's a valid question and it's an important question. But one of the things that I think has been lost that I'm hoping we're starting to see getting revived throughout progressive movements and in all kinds of sort of sub genres of that movement is internationalism, is the idea that, you know, and I think this was very alive in the 60s. If our foreign policy is so barbaric, then our domestic policy is going to be barbaric too. I think there was a real connection in the 60s to Vietnam. And I think we started to see that spark kind of happen again with the the second Iraq war. But I don't think that connection was fully made. I'm seeing it made on a more deep level these days, you know, where we understand that our foreign policy and our domestic policy are connected by a certain set of values, and that right now those values are not where they should be, what they should be. I think that is an incredibly important change that has happened, that is starting to happen. And I think we're mostly seeing it, unfortunately, I would say, in the Black community. And I only say unfortunately because I feel like it's largely been confined to that community. I think I haven't seen that awakening in a lot of other places, including my own. I think the Jewish community has always had a certain sense of internationalism because of of our own sort of, you know, and, and again, this comes back to Zionism, our own sort of global sense of community that Jewish people around the world are, are one community. So we have a certain a certain sense of internationalism, but it's confined to the Jewish community. It has not transcended in any community other than, again, what I'm starting to see in the Black Lives Matter movement and, and connected movements in the Black community, this growing sense of internationalism. And I think when that happens, we can start to understand on the progressive side that Israel-Palestine is a domestic issue the way the regressive side, I would say, understands it to be a domestic issue. And I think that can fundamentally change the politics. But all of this is, you know, this takes a long time. Neil, I just want to ask, can I ask the first question before we go to Q&A, at which point you'll, uh, you can select from the questions that have been posed. But, and this is very dear to my research on Islamophobia and anti-Muslim racism. But how in, you know, and I'd like an answer from both Mitchell and Mark, is how have the last 20 years, the post 9-11 era, wherein Muslims are overtly discriminated against, it's not only acceptable, but it's actually politically expedient, particularly if you're a Republican, for you to be anti-Muslim right, and Islamophobic. And how has that Muslim terrorist trope, which, as we all know, is implicitly presumption that all Muslims are Arabs, so there's also an anti-Arab right, racism within that, But how has that affected the issue of Palestine domestic in terms of whether it has helped to mobilize progressives vis-a-vis the Palestine issue, whether it has really hasn't affected it or it's helped to uh, make it more difficult to support Palestinian human rights because of Islamophobia 
But I'd be interested to know. And, and I guess my question has two, two parts to it. One is the grassroots, which is what you all started talking about. But also, and you also talked about the elected officials, because many of us are still trying to figure out why. What are those factors that make this such an uneven dispute or, or uneven domestic political issue in terms of how we address it, how we talk about it, and how we approach it through as our country, the U.S. government and, and its our foreign policy? So, Mark, do you want to start first? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a great and, and very complicated question and an interesting one, because there's a way that resistance to Palestinian freedom and self-determination so so strongly precedes 9-11. Certainly at post 9-11, it gets even more, it gets even more terrible, but it's also complicated by the fact that for George W. Bush, who's president at that time, that wasn't the priority issue in the same way as it was. Even, even if you think about his his father in his position or or how, which was actually in many ways more progressive, more helpful than some of than many Democrats. If you look at Bill Clinton with the Clinton Accords and his attempt to, you know, from Oslo to the very last days of office, attempting to, in his mind, create some sort of, or at least ostensibly create some sort of uh, peace agreement. George Doug, which is somewhat less invested in this issue for reasons that, that we all know, or maybe we don't all know, but that, are, that are very much linked to the kind of his commitment to other parts of the Middle East, particularly Iraq. So I think that there's multiple things going on simultaneously here. I think that the Palestinian liberation has always been, or, or has yeah, essentially always been certainly linked to this question of terror and terrorism. Even when the PLO is attempting to and ultimately gains con- uh, official position as the, as the represent- representatives of the Palestinian people, the American media narrative, the American political narrative, the, the narrative out of Washington is that this is a terrorist organization. And so the language of terror has always been used as a way of uh, undermining support for essentially any representative of the Palestinian people. Hamas is not the first group that has been sort of challenged in that way, even though they're, again, democratically elected, et cetera, right? Complicated question. The other piece of this is so many of the most horrific dimensions of life in Palestine have been normalized, partly because there is a kind of long-standing orientalist narrative that this, these are barbaric people, that these are uncivilized people. These are people who are not ready for democracy. And so when you hear about the kind of extraordinarily... I mean, if you, if you look at what's happening in, I do my research in East Jerusalem. And so, which is, I mean, relative to, you know, other places that we could be looking at, whether it's Gaza, whether it's, you know, other parts of the West Bank, or whether it's some of, some of the camps, they're worse places to be, although it's awful. But when you look at those conditions, when you look at home evictions, when you look at the trash in the streets, when you look at the lack of political representation in a very real way, there are many people in the West who say, that's just how they are. That's just how Arabs are. Those people have been fighting forever. The idea of the intractable war or the intractable conflict is bound up in this idea that people have been fighting forever. The idea of Arab nationalism, the idea of extraordinary moments of unity and, and political compromise and expansion is completely erased from the historical, from the American historical narrative. And so we think Arabs fight, Muslims fight, brown people fight, and they need American intervention to stop them from fighting or to liberate women, right? And so this becomes the narrative. And so it becomes very challenging to to inspire people to believe that a bombing or that a siege, the constant siege of Gaza, for example, is something that needs to be intervened because like, that's just what happens there, which is a very different response than we would have, say, to a Kosovar. It's a very different response than we would have to someone domestically, right? I mean, it's the same difference between, well, let me not go there. there there's lots of ways that we see different people in different bodies as, as worthy of investment, worthy of protection, worthy of safety. And we see others as kind of always in a state of chaos and precarity. And we accept that. And I think Islamophobia and Orientalism underwrite that so that we don't 
We're just not outraged when we see some of the most horrific. I mean, Gaza was supposed to be uninhabitable by 2020 by all predictions. And the predictions were right. Every single measure of, ha- of inhabitability, they fall below. And there's no outrage here. This is part of what we get at in the book. And so one of the answers to get at your question of how does this happen, part of why you can be progressive except for Palestine, ostensibly, is because the type of outrage you get when you think about kids at the southern border, the type of sense of citizenship that you want to protect by saying you have a right to free speech and organize doesn't count when we talk about when we talk about BDS. It doesn't count when we talk about the outrage in Gaza. It doesn't count when we think about, I mean, it doesn't count because at the core, we still have yet to fully see Palestinians as human beings. We have yet to see Arabs and Muslims as human beings fully. Yeah. And I would add also, you know, I mean, the story of Israel and Palestine is actually a story of imbalance. The, you know, on the ground in the region, Israel is a very stable state with a stable economy and a stable government, which is unusual in that region. You know, that one of the, uh, advantages of having democratic structures is that you're not constantly worried about coups like they are in Egypt, Jordan, uh, Iraq, or fearing your own people because you've been so draconian on them as as happens in Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, and other places. So that's among many reasons that Israel is considered on a policy level very valuable to the West. Israel offers, you know, it offers a dynamic economy. It offers a lot of geostrategic advantages. It offers a lot of intelligence. It offers a lot of research and technology. It does all of these things. It is a key cog in the international system. Palestinians who are stateless, who have been completely dispossessed, who have lost much of what they had 100 years ago, offer very little. And in fact, their success is a threat. Their success is a threat to American allies in the region because, you know, just imagine what you're sitting there looking at a Palestinian success, what would that mean to dictatorships in the region? What would that mean? If Palestinians succeeded, it would give impetus to movements for freedom throughout the Arab world. That's a big deal. That scares a lot of people. That is a threat to upset the system uh, and turn it into a system where resources in the Arab world are actually used for the people in the Arab world. That's not something the United States is eager to see happen. So, you know, there's imbalance there. Domestically, there's the same kind of imbalance. I have worked in Washington now for the past 12 years. I have gone to many, many congressional offices, the State Department, the White House. I meet with these staffers. They all tell me the same thing. They all tell me the same thing. We get calls every day, a flood of calls, a flood of letters, a flood of emails from people saying, you know, support Israel, do this, support this right-wing policy, support Netanyahu, support that, you know, and we don't hear from the other side. I mean, we read, they read the papers, they see the internet, they see social media, sure, but they're not getting those letters. And those, you know, those communications matter. You know, when you look on the Republican side, why do Republican Congress members prioritize Israel so much? Well, because their voters, one of the biggest blocks of voters that they have are evangelical Christians who passionately, in most cases more than Jews, support far-right Israeli policies, who do not acknowledge Palestinian humanity at all and want to see the most draconian, most, frankly, fascist policies take over there. You know, on the Democratic side, you have an enormous pro-Israel lobby that works very, very hard. And, you know, let's be very clear, the, the APAC and the other lobbying groups do not set policy, but they do exploit it and they do stifle debate and they do support candidates who they expect will, you know, promote the policies that they like. That is called playing American politics. And unfortunately, the pro-Palestinian side has not historically been very good at doing that. It's gotten better in the last few years. 
So all of that matters. But I think uh, the, the one last point I want to make, and I think is really important, is that we're talking about America. We are, Mark and I are writing as Americans, talking about American policy. But, you know, that can't be divorced from events on the ground. The split between Fatah and Hamas matters a great deal. The fact that Palestinian leadership has been rudderless, to put it kindly, for the past few decades is a big deal. It's a problem. It is a problem because it is hard when people are supporting the Likud-led government. There's a government there. There's a structure. There is a clear agenda. You know, they know who they're supporting and they know why they're supporting them. Among the Palestinians, there is a split. There's a lot of fighting. There's an enormous criticism among Palestinians of both Fatah and Hamas. Neither one of those leadership are, you know, popularly, you know, embraced. Both are seen as self-serving and corrupt in different ways. It's a major problem. And that's something that we can't do a lot about. But it does make it more difficult for us to gather support for the Palestinians because there isn't a political program. There's so much fighting among Palestinians that there isn't a clear political agenda, especially now that the two-state solution on any, you know, in any realistic measure has collapsed. So what exactly are we trying to get people politically here to support? What are the initiatives we're trying to bring to Capitol Hill or to the White House? You know, especially those of us who are progressive believe that Palestinians should be setting this agenda. And I think that's a very important point. So for the most part, what we're doing right now is opposing Israeli policies. And that's just not enough. We need more than that. But until we have more than that, we work with what we have. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Race and Rights podcast. This podcast is hosted by the Center for Security, Race and Rights, housed at Rutgers Law School, also known as the People's Electric Law School. CSRR engages in research, education, and advocacy on issues that adversely impact the civil and human rights of America's diverse Muslim, Arab, and South Asian communities. We do so through an interfaith, cross-racial, and interdisciplinary approach. To hear additional episodes of the Race and Rights podcast, Check out our pages on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and everywhere else podcasts are available. Now, for a deep dive on these issues, visit our website at csrr.ruggers.edu, where you can find policy reports, teach-ins, and news commentary by our over 130 faculty affiliates. To watch our over 80 academic and public policy lectures, subscribe to our YouTube channel at Rutgers Center for Security, Race, and Rights. And on social media, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Rutgers CSRR and on Twitter and Facebook at RUCSRR. Finally, you can financially support the Center for Security, Race, and Rights by going to our website at csrr.rutgers.edu and press the donate button. And please give generously. As always, be well and see you next time.